Hi, I'm Andy Psarianos. Hi, I'm Robin Potter. Hi, I'm Adam Gifford. This is the School of School podcast. The Mass No Problem Annual Conference is back. Join us in London this November. World-renowned speakers and experts will gather to discuss math mastery in the post-pandemic world. Be part of the conversation. Visit mathsnoproblem.com for details. Okay, welcome back, everyone, to another School of School podcast. Uh, We're here today with the regular crew, Adam and Robin, and of course, we also have uh, special guest today, Craig Parkinson. Craig, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I came into the profession um, a little bit late. I came in as a, a secondary maths teacher, um, and I came in in my 30s. I'd done jobs before this, and throughout my my, my sort of early career as a teacher, um, I, I loved seeing pupils learn, but I, I enjoyed seeing how we as teachers developed as well. So it was, it was a natural progression to move into uh, into teacher training. So now. Um, I, I work as a, a maths no problem trainer. Um, done that for about six years. Um, I also work with um, Professor John Hattie and his team delivering the Visible Learning Plus program um, within uh, within the UK. Uh, been doing that for about eleven years, and I also work as a, a Clifton Strengths coach for, with Gallup, um, and and that's um, that's something that sort of ties into all the other things that I've done before. Um, it helped me to to be the best version of myself. That's fascinating. So, um, Craig, today I think we're talking about talking about metacognition, right? Um, for for the sake of our listeners, what is metacognition? Most people would would reach for the the standard definition of thinking about thinking, um, which um, Flavel uh, sort of proposed at conference back in the nineteen seventies. But th- there's a second part to it that I think people were writing down thinking about thinking. They missed the second part, um, and it goes on saying then attending to our thinking. Um, so, so this idea of meta and um, uh, Rachel Lofthouse um, summed it up beautifully when she said meta is sometimes a, an echo word. So metacognition is cognition about cognition in the same way as meta language is language about language. Uh, but metacognition is just having, um, if we describe cognition as um, being able to make progress, metacognition allows you to control progress. So it's about reflecting partially as well, right? So um, it, it's about being aware of your cognition, I suppose, and being able to regulate it to a certain extent. Here's an interesting thing. People always talk about, you know, the the prefix meta, which is a, comes from the Greek word, which in Greek, it actually means after, right? Mm-hmm. So if you were to translate it, it actually means afterthought, right? So, um, so there you go. There's a bit of interesting trivia for you, because people always talk about meta as if it's like, you know, the thing about the thing, right? But it's actually not what it means in Greek. So anyway, there you go. A little bit of Greek for you. See? Right, so let's get back to metacognition. So why is metacognition important in mastery? Craig, you're the special guest. Why don't you kick us off? Why do you think it's important? The, the, to make progress is probably a, a, a good staging post in terms of um, on a learning journey. You want to be able to, to answer, uh, answer questions and to know new things. But to then be able to do that, that thing that, that, that requires us to not just follow algorithms and, and just follow sort of um, procedural lists of what to do, where, where we start making choices. Um, you know, it's, 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 I think it's the bit that makes us human. 
it's the bit that gives us agency with, with metacognition. I always think about the three phases of it. So you've got the planning phase of metacognition where before you go into your learning, you think, okay, so how am I going to go into this? And what things do I need to be successful? So you, so you plan for success. Then you've got the, the monitoring stage, you know, during your learning, where am I at in my learning? Where am I trying to get to? Um, and then you've got the evaluation phase afterwards. Um, and, and I think when we, when we give pupils and, and, and it's not what's good for the pupils is great for the profession as well, where we give pupils space to plan, not just to, to rush into it and place to, to, to stop off and think and smell the roses of success sometimes and also, you know, work out where in the fog you are um, and also then to evaluate how you're doing. Then we can start probably celebrating success a lot more. And I think metacognition allows us to do that because without metacognition, you're in the binary world of you've you've succeeded or you've failed, where the metacognition allows you to think, OK, how might I succeed next time if I've not been successful this time? I'm just trying to wrap my head around this, Craig. What I'm hearing is that metacognition, as it pertains to students, provides strategies to get learners to achieve better outcomes by encouraging deeper thinking. Am I on the right track? Yeah, it's really about self-awareness, Robin. It's kind of like mindfully uh, approaching something so that you don't just get into it in a sort of a rote fashion. Like sometimes it's easier to think about it, well, for me anyway, if you think about it like learning a musical instrument is a perfect example, right? You know, if you're just learning the robotics, so let's say, you know, a lot of people can sit at a piano and play just maybe a very simple tune, like Mary Had a Little Lamb, for example, right? You know, it's just like plink, 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 plink on the piano, one finger kind of stuff, right? So that doesn't require a tremendous amount of metacognition in the sense that, you know, it's just a robotic act. It's like pure muscle memory in most cases, right? You're not really thinking about what's going on or how, you know, the pros, you know, while a metacognitive musician would be very conscious of, you know, what scale am I playing in? Um, you know, how does that affect the rest of the orchestration of the thing? You know, and 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 how am I going to syncopate it? So it's like just being aware of all the elements and being aware and being able to regulate them. So you're thinking very deeply about what you're playing, and even if it's not at a conscious, like a very conscious level, there's a there's a self awareness of how you're playing, right? So, you know, and that comes, that comes from a discipline of mind, which is really about being able to evaluate your own uh, experience and, 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 and being mindful that you can change that experience somehow, right? That you're not just, you know, showing up and doing this robotic procedure. So if you think of like, I don't know, imagine in, you're in secondary school and you're doing, you know, you're, you're doing more complicated mathematics and it gets very procedural at some point. So you're doing something like, I don't know. Uh, quadratic equations. And it's like, chances are you were taught in a very robotic fashion. Step one, do this. Step two, do that. Step three, do that. Step four, do that, right? So if you're not metacognitive about it, you will basically come in and just do the steps. Boom, 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 right? A very metacognitive mathematician might look at the question and say, actually, maybe I can approach this in a different fashion. Or, you know, there's all kinds of mental disciplines. Or this this is particularly cumbersome. Maybe I can take a slightly different approach or whatever the case may be. So you're just operating at a very, very different level. Yeah? It's, it's about being self-aware of what you're doing, I think. That's one way of explaining it. But it's much more sophisticated than that. 
when you look at things like the solo taxonomy, as, as somebody progresses through the taxonomy, you, you, you start building knowledge. They so go from one to many to relate. And then the extended abstract, that's where we do start um, analogizing. That's where creativity comes in. And, and, and that's when we know when somebody, um, you know, like Andy's tr truly owning their, their learning. Because you can say it's like this and give a high quality um, analogy or an extended metaphor regarding it. Um, for, for, for me with metacognition, um, just to pick up on one of the points that Andy mentioned, you know, you can be metacognitive even if you're a novice at something. So I wanted to learn to fly a plane, but I didn't want to fly a real one because that's like really scary. So I went in, into one of the, the Lufthansa pilots um, training to fly an A320. But I had no idea how to fly a plane, but I was metacognitive all the way through. Um, and after about, you know, four or five hours flying time, because I was in charge of my own learning and I knew where I was at and where I was trying to get to and I'd planned things, I asked the flight instructor how I was getting on and they, they said, we, we were commenting that we've never seen anybody be so um, so capable of self-improving as, as you've been. And it was because I was wanting, I was using the solo taxonomy to help me to do that, but I knew what, that I was a novice. So I knew there were things that I needed to know and I knew the type of feedback that I wanted. So you can be really metacognitive even if, if you're a novice. A, a, a child age three learning to put a coat on by themselves can do it in a metacognitive way. Um, so metacognition is not something to be saved for, for experts at all, is it? I remember being told, and this is, I, I like it because it's all fitting in to, to everything that we're saying here. And I really like, I'm not just saying this, Andy, because you, you're a proud, you know, proud Greek, but I like that idea about the afterthought. I like, I like that idea about meta. I remember being explained once, I can't remember who it was, it was someone from Singapore, and they were talking about metacognition, and they were saying, they, they thought about metacognition as developing an identity as, an, as a learner. That this is this is how I go about things, and this is how I learn, and this is how I can reflect on something, and this is how I can become better at something. And so, just as Craig's described about if you're a novice, you know, if, if I identify and I understand how I learn, or I'm curious about how I learn, or I'm curious about how I can learn better, just excuse my dog in the background; she's having a moment. Um, you know, <laughs> these these are the sorts of things that that I think when it was explained to me in that in that way that that we can develop an identity. And, and it gives that sort of uniqueness, but it also suggests that we need those opportunities to develop an identity. And, and so in education, if we don't give children a chance to do that, and where I've seen that most is where people, through the uh, misguided support, that's probably the best way I can say it, because they, they don't feel that a child can do something, so therefore I'll do it for you, and that's helping you sort of denies that opportunity to develop that identity as a learner, you know, mm. and, and you can only learn about learning something if you fail at it, you know, and, and have terrible experiences at it as well as succeeding and those sorts of things. And I think, I think that, that, that really resonated with me. I mean, it doesn't, there's nothing different to what's already been said, but I like the idea of that and we can continue to develop that identity as a learner as we succeed and fail in learning, I guess. That's right. And I think, you know, like, there's so many different ways that you can think about this, but, you know, bringing, bringing it back to an analogy of the piano, right? Because you all know how much I like analogies. If you fiddle around on a piano not knowing what you're doing, what you quickly realize is that not all the notes sound really equally as good together as others, right? And and being aware of that um, is, you know, is a, is a level of metacognition, which then allows you to understand why, let's say, a particular scale, the pentatonic scale or the major scale, 
is relevant, right? Because you're aware, it's not like, if someone just shows you how to play plink, 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 plink on the piano, there's very little metacognition. But if you fiddle around on the piano for a while, you'll realize that mm, these notes don't really sound all that good together, right? And then someone says, well, try this group of notes. And then, then you know, you start piecing together some kind of structure, but it, you have to be present in order, like you have to be mm. mentally present. And it's a discipline of mind. It's like, hmm, I wonder why those notes didn't sound well together. And then somebody gives you a bit of structure and says, here's a scale, try using just these notes. All of a sudden it works a little bit better. It's That's the metacognitive process in action, right? It's like being aware of what's going on, self-evaluating, evaluating what you're doing, evaluating what the result is. And and it's a discipline that we try to build in children. So it, like, for example, a maximal problem, you know, it's very deliberate in the textbooks, the metacognitive uh, process, but it's also very, should be very deliberative in a teacher's practice. By asking children the same questions over and over and over again, you're effectively creating a discipline of mind where what one hopes is, is that they start asking themselves those questions. So if you constantly say to a child, you know, like, because as a teacher, if you're using this similar language all the time, you say, how do you know? Are you sure? You know, what do you think of that? These types of things are just prompts. They're metacognitive prompts. If, if, if you ask the children the same, if you say the same thing over and over to, to them every day, there's no surprise when they start asking themselves those questions before they put their hand up or before they talk to their neighbor or whatever, right? And that's really metacognition, metacognition in action. You know, that's what it's all about, right? That's self-regulation. Uh, I think it's developed as well um, in, intentionally by the teacher or unintentionally by the teacher through the type of feedback that you give to your pupils. Yes, absolutely. So there's the instructional model of feedback from from um, John Hattie and Helen Timperley that talks about when, when you're working with a novice, um, how we turn, uh, define that, you know, that's a, another issue. But with, with somebody who's brand new to it, you just need to tell them whether it's right or wrong. You know, there's no deep thinking there. They just need correcting and, and showing a good example. Um, but feedback should always do two things, shouldn't it? It should, number one, close the gap in learning. That's the purpose of feedback. And number two, it should develop greater levels of self-regulation in the recipient. So you move on from telling them what to do to starting to prompt them a little bit, which is why what you said there, Andy, about the pupil gets the the question in their own head that they're going to be asked by the teacher. So they start having the, the um, an internal uh, monologue Dialogue. with themselves. Yeah. Um, but then beyond that, you move to self-regulation feedback where you ask about, okay, how did you plan for this? What did you do in terms of monitoring? What about evaluation? Um, but, you know, we, 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 we dress this um, in, the, in the, the right form for the pupil that we're with. That's right. And then as a teacher, the goal is, is that you have to get really good at that, right, um, over time with experience. But I think it's a natural, it's a natural way of, of, of teaching, I suppose, uh, these well, I'm days. jump in there and I don't know that it uh, is. Okay, I honestly not. don't one, know one that it is. One would hope that it's an actual... <laughs> yeah, so, I, think, I think be aspirational, yes, okay, okay but, but right. is that the reality? I'm not sure. Sorry, you keep going, Andy, but I had to jump in there. Oh, no, I'm just I, not I sure. I stand corrected. Um, so, but one would hope that it's a natural way of teaching and, and something that we should be encouraging uh, new teachers and, and through professional development, you know, teachers that have been at it for a while to to consider in the classroom is just that, you know, just, just lining up and saying, yes, that's correct. You know, you're right, you're wrong, whatever. Like there may be a time when that's the right thing to do, but largely most of the time you probably want to 
give them an opportunity to regulate a little bit more. Yeah, right? But I, I, I think though, Andy, I think you have to be quite brave. I think you have to be quite brave at times. And sometimes time allows that. So I'm going to use that. Craig talked about children putting on their coats. Right. And I used to get told off. I was terrible. And now I'm well aware of developing metacognition. But when I wasn't in the classroom, I was in school leadership. I'd always go down on a bad day and go down and see the reception class because they cheered me up. Right. We kids, they always cheer you up. Mm. They'll say something that just, you know, is either complete genius makes you laugh or you've got no idea where it's come from. But it's that whole thing about I can't quite get my zip done properly. Right. And I'm thinking, oh, they're only outside for 10 minutes. Come here, mate. Let me just zip it up for you. And I'd get daggers looked at me from the teachers. But I think that that idea around time, I think that sometimes it feels like you're being brave by getting them to the the the, the what's deemed a success. So finding an answer or something like that, where actually if you look at the actual learning that's taking place, you probably, there's a potential to deprive a lot of it. But if we place massive importance on that success criteria, which is, for example, a right answer versus the, the, the correct success criteria, which is a child being able to get the right answer and then get it in multiple ways, I think, I think there's, still, there's still an aspect of that that exists, that as long as the child gets seven, and, and you see in marking policies where it sort of says, oh, teacher teacher assisted or or it's been written in the book and when you see that in, in practice it's almost like well teacher did it and so what's the point in marking in a book and saying that this was teacher assisted and done if it just means that yeah there's there's the right answer on the page that's super duper but if the child can't do it tomorrow and, and hasn't learned anything from the process and so I suppose what I'm saying is I think that you're right it should be it should be natural instinctive giving people a chance to fail to learn you know letting them experience something first but I, I just I think sometimes there's there's uh, a misguided sense of success criteria and time pressures which make people think I'll just get them to the finish line even if it means I have to pick them up and run with them you know like that that's I, I think that still exists is that in conflict with metacognition do you think like is that really well well, well I'll, I'll go back to an analogy so that pick it up and run right let's say you wanted to become a hundred meter sprint champ if every time you saying Bolt picked you up and ran with you and got you over the line, so you did a hundred meters in under ten seconds. If he picked me up, I can guarantee time. you he's not going anywhere fast. Right? <laughs> <laughs> no, but using that analogy, that's not going to make you a faster runner. You could argue that that sort of as a as a byproduct, you see how he sets up at the line and there's stuff that you can learn. But if it's the actual act of running a hundred meters, you've got to do it. Yeah, and that's the original definition of coach. Or one of the original definitions of coach, it was somebody who picked somebody up and carried them in the same way a coach was a carriage for people. That's the original um, academic definition of wow. what a coach was. Quite like that. Interesting. Okay, I'm still envisioning Andy on Adam's back, sprinting to the finish line. <laughs> but Craig, thank you so much for joining us for this discussion on metacognition. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, thanks everyone. Thank you for joining us on the School of School podcast.